please open your Bibles to James 1, James chapter 1. Last week it was that we began our brief series on the book of James, and you'll recall I suggested to you that James writes his letter, James writes his letter to believers who are struggling to live their faith out loud, to, to, to live out loud in the midst of a culture that urged loving self over loving God and loving others. You recall that James' letter includes three main themes, trials and temptations, wisdom and speech, and rich and poor. And it's within those three themes that James does his work and reminds us and encourages believers to live out loud. We started looking at trials and and temptations a week ago. James begins by encouraging believers to consider joy when facing trials. Because trials or testing lead to perseverance, and perseverance ends ultimately in perfection. When we persevere when tested, we become more and more like Jesus. One writer sums up James' point in this way. He says, for the Christian, heaven is not the goal, it's the destination. The goal is that Christ be formed in you. And according to James, perseverance under trial and testing helps accomplish this goal. Your Bibles are open to James 1. Mine was, and then I lost it, so oh, there it is. And James has more to say about trials and temptations than we could cover last week, and so I do too. So let's pick it up at James, verse, James 1, verse 12. I'll read through verse 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Now there's an interesting word play, word game that's going on in this passage that's helpful to note. The Greek noun, pirasmos, Say pirasmos. That noun means trial, test, or temptation. 
And its verb form, pirazzo, go ahead, try pirazzo. It means to try, to test, or to tempt. Same Greek word, but different meanings. Now, trial and test are very similar in meaning, but temptation, that meaning temptation brings in something new, doesn't it? And James uses this one Greek word with many different meanings to help make his point in this chapter. If we take a peek at last week's passage from James 1, verses 2 and 3, one reason that James can so closely fit together facing trials and being tested is because he uses the same Greek word both times. Whenever you face pirasmos, your faith is being pirazod, being tested. Same word. So in this context, same thing. But in today's passage, beginning in verse 13, James does something very interesting. He keeps that same Greek word, but now takes us to its very different meaning, the meaning of temptation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Same Greek word. And so even grammatically, the Greek reader in the first century must have been thinking, and we don't have to do this thinking because our English translation makes this clear to us, But a Greek reader reading James' original letter might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. How did we get from trials and testing all the way to temptation? I mean, here's that same Greek word again, but suddenly in context, James is using it differently. Isn't it the same word? Why is James shifting from pirasmos, meaning trial, to pirasmos, meaning temptation. In English, we could just as easily ask, why is James shifting from the word trial or test to the word temptation? It's just that in Greek, the shift is even more obvious, more emphatic, because it's the same Greek word. And I think it's because There's an emphasis here that James is trying hard to bring out by using a different meaning of one Greek word. It brings attention to what he's doing. Because by shifting the meaning, he sets up this question. What is it that makes a trial a temptation? What is it that makes a trial that tests our faith and leads to perseverance and ultimately perfection, what makes that into a temptation? How does a trial become a temptation? And James gives us the answer in the next verse. But each one is tempted when, each one moves from the positive progression of trial to perseverance to perfection to temptation, Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, 
he is dragged away and enticed. And so the answer to the question, what makes a trial a temptation, the answer is we do. Our response, our attitude, what we do, how we live out loud or not with a trial, with hardship, that determines whether or not it remains a trial or becomes a temptation. James lands firmly in something the rabbis call yetzer thinking. Say yetzer. Wow, and see, now you've spoken both Greek and Hebrew in the assembly today. Good job. Yetzer means will or desire or inclination. To make sense of life with all its chaos, Jews had three options to explain evil, three options to choose from. God's the cause of evil, or the devil's the cause of evil, or humans are the cause of evil. Jewish Yetzer thinking focused on that third one, that humans are the cause. While not denying the second, Satan and his schemes as a contributing factor. And certainly not God. Anchoring their thoughts to Genesis 6 verse 5, where if you remember just before the flood, God looks out and he sees that every person's inclination, Yetzer, was evil all the time, Genesis says. Anchoring their thoughts there, Jews constructed the belief that in each human heart there are two Yetzers. The evil desire, Yetzer hara, and the good desire, Yetzer hatov. And those two Yetzers in each of us do battle. Each Yetzer in us wants to control us, control our will and desire, what we think, what we do, how we feel. Now, if this Jewish rabbinic notion sounds familiar to us, and it should, it may be because this thinking is clearly evident in passages like Romans 7, those famous, it's the doo-doo passage, right? Where Paul bears his own soul and struggle with sin when he tells us, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Or in Galatians 5, where Paul urges us to live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Jesus also recognizes this same internal battle when he says, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. And so right in line with his rabbi, right in line 
with Jesus. James emphasizes this in his opening chapter. Trials and testing that should lead to perseverance and ultimately to our becoming more and more like Jesus instead become temptations that lead to sin and sin to death when by our own evil desires, our own evil yetzer, if you will, we're dragged away to sin. Our response to hardships in life, our response to trials and testing is what turns a trial, a positive trial experience in God's eyes, becoming more and more like Jesus, into temptation that can lead to death. And apparently, some believers in James's day, perhaps he got word since he leads with this, apparently some believers were questioning God's goodness in light of all the hardships going on, and not only blaming God for the hardships, but blaming God for tempting them to sin. And James quickly removes God from any blame. He says God doesn't tempt anyone. He tests for our benefit. And remember last week's definition of test has a negative connotation for us, unfortunately. Biblically, it does not. You wanted to be tested by God like Abraham was. You wanted to be given the opportunity in life to show how much it is that you love God and love others. You wanted that test, that opportunity. God doesn't tempt anyone. He tests for our benefit, but he doesn't tempt. He doesn't set us up to sin. He gives us a test, and it's up to us whether that test becomes a temptation or not. It's not God that causes temptation. It's us by our own evil yetzer. And it's not the devil. Eve was the first one to try that theory out, right? The devil made me do it, Lord. Adam didn't blame the devil. No, he did something much worse. He blamed his wife. So God bless her, God bless her, really, I've mentioned this before because this just amazes me, gentlemen, and ladies too, with what God has put in woman. Hey, there sits Eve, actually there she lies under the bus that Adam just threw her under. I mean, there the two of them are, husband and wife, and they know something bad's coming. They know, I mean, they're hiding so there they are, you know, naked, embarrassed now. And there's Adam and Eve, and Eve watches God turn to Adam. What happened? And so she's like looking at Adam. <laughs> she made me do it! And it just amazes me that Eve didn't throw it right back at Adam, who was there at the tree too. Even in that setting... She didn't do it. 
But she did follow her husband's lead and refused to take the blame herself. Both of them too proud to admit their mistake, to take ownership of their mistake. Both too proud to say, sorry, Lord, I blew it. Please forgive me. I wonder if they had said that. Well, now we're on a rabbit trail. (laughs) Instead, Eve says, the devil made me do it. It's not the devil, it's us. It's not God. God tests, but he doesn't tempt. And it's not the devil. James doesn't even mention the devil here. He does later in his letter, acknowledges his power, the devil's power, but he doesn't hear. Interesting. It's not God, and the devil didn't make me do it. When I'm tempted, it's me. It's that evil inclination, that evil yet's are in me winning that battle and turning what God may have intended as a trial into a temptation and sin and death. Jesus, in the wilderness. Always here, yeah, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. The NIV Bible, at least, even includes that in its heading. And you know what? He really wasn't Tempted there. Say, how can you say that? He was tested. And his response of obedience when being tested kept him away from the road of temptation and sin and deserving death. When we pray that line in the Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, Oh, that fits perfectly here with James. We may be tested, given that opportunity to show we love God and others when we face trials of many kinds, given an opportunity to develop perseverance. And so our prayer really isn't there, God, don't test me. Instead, it's, God, don't let me be tempted. Don't let me turn the trials in life into temptations. When I ask God not to lead me into temptation, I'm really asking him, hey, Lord, please help me not to blow it. I need your strength here not to blow it and go down that road of temptation and sin and death. Please don't Let me blow it. Lead me not into temptation. Please help me to respond the right way to trials. Please help me to obey and to love all the more when pressed, come what may. One anchor to help us respond to trials with obedience and love, we've been singing about it all morning, one anchor is for us to remember and to trust that God is good. God is love. James knows, I think, that if we let that go, if we begin to doubt God's goodness, we take one giant step toward trials becoming temptations to sin. I mean, why be obedient if God isn't completely good? Why trust a God who tempts me to sin? 
In response, James assures us, don't worry, God is good and God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Instead, trials and tests are there to build perseverance and perseverance to help us become more and more like Jesus, not to entice us to sin. That enticement comes from ourselves. The Bible really couldn't be clearer on this point, right from Genesis 3 and now in James 1. It's us that makes a trial into a temptation. Now, the question that I usually get uh, from students or others who are studying or reading from this passage in James, <laughs> and it's a question, ironically, I suppose, that James really doesn't discuss in detail. But since almost everyone seems to ask this question, I wanted to touch on it this morning. And the question always wants to focus on where trials and tests come from. And inevitably, the discussion comes to this question. Is every hardship in life a trial or test that comes directly from God? And that's a tough question. Some would say, yes. Since God is absolutely sovereign, every difficulty, no matter how devastating, how hard, how ugly, how horrific, every one of them is a trial or a test directly from God meant to make us more like Jesus. Nothing happens that God doesn't ordain or allow or pre-plan. Even satanic attacks, while from Satan, are only possible when God says, like he does in Job, go ahead, Satan. And since even these sorts of attacks, in the end, make us more like Jesus as perseverance does its work, well then, even these terrible things can be viewed as gifts from God. And if you're not viewing it that way, and if you don't feel that way about it, so this conclusion goes, well, maybe you need to develop a greater maturity in the faith because a mature Christian can look at things like cancer or like abuse from a spouse or like things even more horrible. And a mature faith means, you know, we should even thank God for those gifts of testing to make us more like Jesus. And while that sort of thinking may emphasize God's sovereignty and control, and perhaps even be a source of comfort to us that God is in control of it all, such thinking can also do serious harm to the overwhelming evidence in the Bible that God is love. Or as James says here in our passage this morning, every good and perfect gift is from above. Are we really to view cancer and abuse as a good and perfect gift directly from God because it teaches us perseverance? 
Is cancer a loving gift? I think we need to be very careful not to lose sight of the fact that because we live in a fallen world, much of what happens to us is not a direct gift from God. The Bible doesn't picture it that way. Instead, much of what happens to us, at least, is the result of our own sin, the result of someone else's sin, or a result of a spiritual attack, a result of the devil's treachery. Even in light of God's absolute sovereignty, he doesn't deserve the responsibility, the blame for every hard thing, which a hard-nosed approach suggesting every trial or test is directly from God suggests. And believe me, I'm not giving an inch on God's absolute sovereignty and control here. I believe deeply in it. It's part of who he is. But I want to remind us that within that sovereignty and control, because of love, God carves out room for free will to have real effect. Within God's absolute sovereignty and control, our choices matter. And for that matter, the devil's choices do too. They have real effect and real power because God in his sovereignty ordained free will. So I'm very reluctant to say every hardship is something God wants for us, wills for us, allows to happen to us. I, cancer isn't a gift from God for heaven's sake. And I don't believe James is asking us to consider it every time at least that way. It's a result of a fallen world which fell because we, through Adam and Eve, blew it. Blew the very good test of living in obedience to God that he offered in paradise. And yet, we nevertheless need to be careful of saying no hard things come from God. Because now we have an equally serious problem with Scripture where God tests people all the time gives them an opportunity to show their faith and love. And many of those tests, have you noticed? All of them are really, really, really hard. Some say, well, some trials and tests for our benefit come from God, but never the really, really hard and awful things. A loving God would never do that. And I have a problem with that absolute conclusion, too. I mean, God tells Abraham, go and climb that mountain over there and kill your son, Isaac. Tell me that Abraham's journey to Mount Moriah wasn't hard. Tell me his eyes weren't filled with tears and his heart filled with dread at the thought of killing his own son. Tell me it wasn't hard for him to lift that knife above his head intending to kill his son because God asked him to do it only to be told at the last moment to stop. 
And tell me that wasn't hard on Isaac. Or tell me that the lives of Moses and Joseph and Elijah, the lives of David and Ruth and Esther and Job or Jeremiah weren't really, really, really hard. And my friends, much of that hardship at least clearly, biblically came to them from doing exactly what God planned for them and told them to do. And the Apostle Paul, oh my goodness, God refuses to heal him of his thorn in the flesh. That had to be really hard for Paul. Or how about Jesus? In light of all of those biblical heroes, tests, and trials that all very clearly came directly from God and his plan for their lives, how can we say that God never directly, is never directly involved in allowing the really hard trials in life to happen, even to those whom he deeply loves? What's frustrating for us at times is it's often impossible for us to determine whether suffering in a given situation is directly from God or not. It's so incredibly difficult for us to discern that. Okay, is this a trial from God or is this an attack from the devil? We very often lack, it seems to me, the eternal perspective or the spiritual discernment needed to figure that one out for sure, in my opinion. And often it takes time before we know. I came across a story this week from a man who lives in Slovakia, a part of the formerly communist Czechoslovakia. He had suffered under communist rule because of his faith, intense suffering. But it was his opinion that while it was difficult to be a Christian under communism, it has become more difficult without it. Listen to what this man says. At least under communism, he said, we had a clear perception of the enemy. Today, the enemy's not so clear, and with increasing affluence, jealousy has reared its ugly head. Looking back, I realized that we had opportunities under communist rule that now seem closed to us. So, wow, in a situation I would be tempted to view as wholly evil, this man perceived signs of good. It's just really, really hard to tell when a present hardship is desired by God or not. We can't just base our decision on how hard it is or how awful it seems. This past week, um, our family, well, we had a James 1 experience, I guess you could say. Jill's mom um, caught uh, or contracted shingles. And... Um, I know some of you or many of you have experienced that virus, and she not only uh, caught shingles, but 
she got a very rare form. She got shingles in her left eye. The doctors told her, and boy, we certainly experienced it, they told her in their opinion, it's the worst pain that a human being can possibly feel. And mom lived that pain, this incredibly strong, gifted, godly woman. She cried out just in agony that God would just take her home. And whatever James is saying here, I'd like to think that his tone is gentle and humble and drenched in love. You can't, please don't. You, you can't go to a person that is in such hardship and, and yell, you know, don't worry, this is for your own good. Mom is ma- or God is making you more like Jesus. Of course not. And don't make that mistake with people in pain. You, you try your best to get the pain to go away and And fortunately, God did that through prayer and through finding the right diagnosis and medicines. But now in the aftermath, mom's coming home from the hospital this morning, in fact, I think right now. (laughs) I have little doubt that mom and all of us will see some good that came through all of this pain. She is without question, in my mind, even more equipped in her counseling ministry, for example, to counsel people in pain. She's been there and done that to a whole new level, and so she can tell them about it and empathize and help them in even a deeper way. And you know, it won't surprise me either way when all of us learn one day where this all came from? Was this hard thing directly from God, or was it straight from the devil or from a fallen world? And you know what? It really won't surprise me either way. Regardless of where it came from, mom will be the first to tell you that she met God there, in the pain, with her, and she'll be the first one to tell you that he's the one who got her through, working for her ultimate Good. I told mom that um, while I was preaching through James 1, she was living it. Whereupon she said with a smile, Hey, I'll change places with you. And I said, Not on your life. <laughs> no, she really didn't say that. We want to ask, Why me? Or why this? Or why, God, all the time, don't we, when hard things happen? A lot of people say we shouldn't ask the why question, that a better question to ask is, well, what should I do now? And I get that, and yeah, it's good to be able to get to that what now question. But I don't have a problem with asking why. God can handle that question. And we're in great biblical company when we ask that question. David asked it. The person we're told who at least at the time was the most righteous person on the face of the earth, Job asked it. Jeremiah also comes to mind. 
And of course, the most famous why question ever asked was the one screamed by Jesus from the cross, why have you forsaken me? So go ahead and ask why. The biblical heroes did. You may need to ask why just to get it out there. And when we do, God will meet us there. He probably won't give a clear answer to the why, but he will be there in love with you in your pain, weeping along with you and promising his love and comfort and his strength to persevere. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Fortunately, our response to trials shouldn't change either way, whatever their origin. So I'm not sure we really need the answer to the question, where does this or that trial come from exactly? Maybe that's why James doesn't discuss that question directly. We don't really need to know. Instead, like James' example, we should focus on our response, regardless of the test or trial or where it came from. And so far in James... We have this advice on how to respond to trials and tests. And oh, he'll give us much more by the time we're through. But so far, how to live out loud in the midst of trials? Consider joy, because trials lead to perseverance, which which leads to being more like Jesus. And don't lose sight of the truth. Don't lose sight of the truth that God is good. Don't allow the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty to be the only characteristic of our great God. Don't let it drown out the equally true truth like we saw this morning on the slide that God wants to give us things that delight us and that he is love. And finally, from this passage, we don't have time to go into it any deeper, but take heart because You have been reborn and regenerated in Christ. And as such, together with God and with God through Christian community, you can and you will overcome whatever trial or hard thing you're facing or will face one day. God promises. He gives us new birth in Christ to do it. Really, the rest of James is giving us examples of what it means to handle trials the right way and what it looks like when we blow it. Two of his favorite areas of life he highlights to illustrate this. Well, there are remaining two themes, wisdom and speech, and especially rich and poor. It's in those contexts where James shows us what it looks like when we respond to trials in the right way and also what it looks like when we, by our own evil desires, blow it and turn a trial into a temptation. And we'll take a closer look at what James has to tell us about that beginning next week. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, as we began singing this morning, you are indeed good. Help us, Father, in the midst of hard things in life. Keep the devil from getting a toehold in us to suggest that hard things in life mean that you are not good, that you are not love. Fill us with that power and assurance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that you're there with us every step of the way through this great, big, beautiful, adventurous, and sometimes hard life that you've given us. Thanks for being the God that will go there with us, even when our transformation into more and more like your son isn't easy. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction, his good words? I think I'll close again with Paul's words to that church in Corinth. If there was a church in the first century that needed encouragement and reassurance, To do well under trials and not to be tempted, it was the church in Corinth. Hear again and be encouraged by Paul's words. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. God is faithful And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. So help us, God. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week, West Bowles. Thank you all.